Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning once again to the book of Joshua. We're continuing our series called Courage Over Fear, and today we are in chapter 6. We'll begin in a moment in verse 1, Joshua chapter 6. We'll start in that very first verse. In the fourth century, there was a preacher from Syria named John Chrysostom, and he made the following statement. You are a poor creature if you think you can overcome without fighting and suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. More than 1,600 years later, those words are just as true today. Spiritual warfare is a reality for every born-again child of God. Now, our warfare may not be against flesh and blood, and the weapons of our warfare are not bows or arrows or swords, and yet spiritual warfare is a reality. This doesn't make it any less lethal, any less real. And in this war, there is no neutrality. In this war, no quarter is given. In our passage this morning, Israel is going to face a battle in chapter 6. This is a story that some of you learned when you were children and Sunday school, and you even learned the song to go with it, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Israel has entered the promised land, and Jericho is the first opponent Israel must face. This is the first battle that they have to fight, but for Israel the city of Jericho was more than just a city that had to be defeated. To them, Jericho represented an utter impossibility. With the exception of two men, no one in Israel had any kind of military experience. As I mentioned last week, they had probably never even seen a walled city before, much less know what to do with it or how to defeat it. They're going to fight this battle, but the only way they will win, the only way they can win is, is if God does it for them. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these stories are written as examples for us for our admonishment, for our edification. In other words, we are meant to learn from these stories so that we can apply them to our lives. Maybe some of you this morning, you have your own Jericho in front of you. Maybe you are facing some impossibility. There's some obstacle in your life that you desperately need to get past, but on your own, you just can't. Maybe some of you are in a situation this morning, and you've been praying, and you've been hoping, and you've been waiting and yet the only way you will have success is if God intervenes. Well, if that is you this morning, I have some good news. Our God specializes in the impossible. He loves to make a way where there seems to be no way. And as we read this story this morning, we're going to see some very basic principles, some spiritual principles when it comes to victory in spiritual warfare. I want you to notice that, first of all, we are victorious 
simply by obeying God's commands. By obeying God's commands. Notice what it says in verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. In the beginning of chapter 5, the Bible says that the people of Jericho heard about what God had done for Israel and their hearts melted. So understand, they were not ignorant. They were aware of God and how the God of Israel was fighting for his people. And yet the Bible says this was their response, to close their doors so that no one could go out or come in. In a way, this is kind of a picture of that man or woman who hardens their hearts by refusing to believe in spite of the evidence God has shown them, in spite of the light God has given to them, they nevertheless refuse to repent. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. You'll notice that God gives some very specific instructions to his people because it's going to take a lot of discipline for them to do what God is telling them to do. Now, personally, I am not a soldier, I'm not a veteran, but I think we can all agree that most people would say this is not what would be called sound military strategy. Can you just imagine if Joshua had met with his military advisors and asked them, men, how do you propose we do this? How are we going to win this battle? And maybe one of them says, well, I know we'll surround the city, we'll lay siege to the city, and then we'll starve them out. And somebody else says, well, well, no, that'll take too long. Let's do this. Let's build giant ramps and climb over the walls. And someone else says, well, well no, that's too risky. Uh, maybe we'll build these strong battering rams and we'll pound and break through the gates of the city. And everyone has their ideas, but I guarantee you, nobody came up with this. To the people, to the world, this seemed like a foolish plan. To them, it probably felt like a waste of time because everybody knows you can't make walls fall down just by screaming at them unless that is exactly what God told you to do. You see, God doesn't tell them to dig any trenches. He doesn't tell them to create any tunnels. He doesn't tell them to build any ladders or create some kind of giant catapult. God says, no, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to simply march around the city, blow trumpets, and then shout really loudly. Didn't make any sense. But you know what? That was kind of the point. God told them to do it this way for two reasons. God was testing them, and God was teaching them. God was testing them to see whether they were willing to obey even when the command did not make sense, even when they did not and they could not understand the method or the how or the why. God was testing them, but he was also teaching them. He was teaching them to trust in the wisdom of God and not in the wisdom of man. Because you know what? Any old army could lay siege to a city, but only God can make the walls fall down on cue. This reminds me of that great passage that many of you know by heart and love, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You see, it's not just Joshua and it's not just Israel, but it is all of us who have to make the decision that we will follow God, that we will obey God, we will trust God, even when we don't understand, even when it does not make sense. And I'll let you in on a little secret this morning. If you will obey God and if you will obey God's word, when it comes to those things in this book, you do not understand you will start to understand a lot more than you already do. You will begin to see the wisdom of God's word and the wisdom of God's ways. We are victorious, first by obeying God's commands, but also by waiting for God's timing. By waiting for God's timing. Look at verse 8. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Something you'll notice in this passage is that there's this repeated emphasis on the number seven. Did you notice? Seven priests carrying seven trumpets. They marched around the city for seven days, and then they marched around the city seven times on the seventh day. You get it? Uh, in the Bible, there's this emphasis on the number seven because seven oftentimes represents completion. In fact, the actual number seven in Hebrew is based on the word for full or complete. And so the number seven is used again and again and again in the story as a reminder to them and to us that God is going to do this. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to complete what he said he would do, but he's going to do it in his time, not theirs. It'll happen according to God's timetable and not according to man's. God could have told Israel to go out in just one day and do all of these things and then be over and done with it. But God did not do it that way. God intentionally dragged it out. Look at verse 11. So he had the ark of the Lord encircle the city, going around it once, 
Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Now notice verse 14. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Six days doing the same thing. Six days of marching around the city, blowing trumpets, going back to the camp. March around the city, blow the trumpets, go back to the camp. I think I can imagine what some of them were thinking. I imagine some of them were thinking, we did this yesterday. It did not work. Why do we have to do it again and again and again? Why are we marching in circles Maybe they had to do this for six days because that's how long it took for them to learn that they could not do it on their own. But notice something else that the people were told to do in verse 10. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. For seven days they were not allowed to speak. They had to remain silent. Joshua said, not a word will come out of your mouth, not just when they're marching around the city. Oh, no, the entire week. You know, for some people, this would be a piece of cake. For other people, this would be torture. You mean to tell me I can't say anything to anybody at all for an entire week? How in the world am I going to survive? I have a theory. You know, maybe... Joshua told them to keep quiet all week long because he remembered how they used to complain about Moses and he decided he didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> but I do think there's another reason. I think there's a, a deeper reason here. I think he tells them to be quiet for an entire week because the time for talking had passed. It was not time to talk. It was not time to debate. It certainly was not time to complain. It was time for the people of God to be still before the Lord and see what God would do. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. We need those times of stillness in our lives so that we can be reminded that God has this. God is in control that's why we must wait. And let me just encourage you, if you are in some season of waiting in your life, listen to me, waiting time is never wasted time. The time you spend waiting on the Lord is never a waste. Now, the fact that they were not allowed to speak for seven days, that probably made it harder. That probably made it feel a lot Longer, And the text does not explicitly say this, but I can't help but think that the people of Jericho probably were looking down at the Israelites every day, marching around the city, blowing their trumpets. They were probably quite amused by this. I can imagine the people of Jericho looking down and saying, Oh, look at you guys marching in your formations. 
You're so cute. Hey, your mamas must be really proud. Listen, you will be ridiculed if you follow the word of God. At least you will be at first. But listen, if you wait on the Lord, eventually, eventually, they will sing a different song. So don't get discouraged if on day one, day two, day three, you don't see any results. Keep marching. Keep being obedient. Keep being faithful. Keep doing what God says. Keep waiting on the Lord. If obedience does not immediately pay off, keep marching. If godly living does not quickly produce the results you hoped for, keep marching. And if you are following God and his word and all you have to show for it is ridicule and frustration and maybe a little bit of embarrassment, keep marching. Because the battle's not over, it's just getting started. We are victorious when it comes to spiritual warfare by obeying God's commands, by waiting for God's timing, but also, and this is probably the key in this entire story, by believing God's promises. By believing God's promises. Look at verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priest blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. This is the second time we've seen this in this story. Back in verse 2, God said to Joshua, I have given you the city. The battle hadn't even started yet. And yet God is referring to the battle as if it's already over. Now, in the Hebrew, we refer to this as the prophetic perfect tense. You'll see this from time to time in Scripture, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, where God will refer to something in the past tense that has not happened yet because God promised that it would happen. It is as sure as done. The Bible describes our salvation this way. In Romans chapter 8, those whom God justified, he also glorified. The fact that one day Christ will come again, he will raise up the dead bodies of those who have died in the Lord, will have glorified bodies. That has not happened yet, but God speaks of it as if it has already taken place. And so God promises Joshua victory in verse 2. And then Joshua repeats that promise to the people in verse 16. He is beckoning them. He is calling on them to believe in the promises of God. Now, there was a very specific way in which Joshua told the people to express their faith in God's promises. The Bible says, first of all, that they blew the trumpets Something very interesting about these trumpets that I want you to notice in Joshua 6. Did you know there were at least two kinds of trumpets that I'm aware of in the Old Testament? In the book of Numbers, they had what was called the silver 
trumpets. And in Numbers chapter 10, I'm not going to turn there, but God told Israel to carry the silver trumpets with them whenever they went into battle. Because they were made of silver, they probably, perhaps, sounded a lot similar to the trumpets people play today. But you know what? Those were not the trumpets that God told them to blow in Joshua chapter 6. In fact, that word for trumpet, that silver trumpet, does not even appear one time in chapter 6. No, the Hebrew word for trumpet that is used in this story is the word shofar, and I happen to have one with me this morning. It looked like this. It was normally made of a ram's horn. And usually when the Bible talks about the shofar in the Old Testament, it is about the different Jewish feasts. Listen to me. The shofar was an instrument of celebration. Isn't it interesting? In Joshua chapter 6, Israel is about to go into battle, but God does not tell them to blow the silver trumpets. He tells them to blow the shofars. He tells the priest not to issue the sound of war, but the sound of worship. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat then the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they took the city man can you imagine all of their anticipation all of that Pent-up enthusiasm, they have been silent. They were not allowed to say a single word for an entire week because they were waiting for that moment at the end of seven days when they would hear that sound, that sound they'd been waiting for all of this time. And you know what it sounded like? I can't play it, but the other pastor of First Baptist Church of Homestead is a trumpet player, and it sounded like this. And when they heard that sound from the seven shofars, church, what did the people do? They shouted. The Bible says it was a great shout. It's like they've been saving their breath and saving their vocal cords all week long for this one moment when they could just let it all out. Well, this was a shout of praise. And you know what? Praise can be a weapon. It can be a weapon that tears down walls of doubt and walls of unbelief. And that's true here. But I also believe there's something even deeper that's going on here. This shout on the part of the people when they heard the shofar, it was a declaration of their faith in the promise of God. And you know how I know that? Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. 
What power was it that brought down the walls of Jericho? It was the power of God unleashed by the faith of the people of God. That was the power that did it. And this was how they voiced their belief. This was how they expressed their faith out loud that God would do what he said he would do. And when they did, God did. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we are victorious ultimately by believing in God's promises by our faith. And just like in Joshua 6, that faith must be expressed because faith without works is what? Dead. It must be expressed. We must demonstrate our faith in God's promises by everything we say and everything we do. That's where the victory is won. We're victorious by obeying God's commands, by waiting for God's timing, by believing God's promises. But one more thing, by considering God's judgment. By considering God's judgment. And I've got to tell you, I've heard this story preached and told many times. I hardly ever hear anyone mention this particular part of the story that I'm about to talk to you about this morning. I want you to notice what it says in verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Jericho was condemned to destruction. And I want you to notice, it says all who are in it except for Ruth and those with her in her house. Verse 21 is even more specific. It says they destroyed men and women, young and old, as well as the animals. Now, do I like this? No. I don't think any of us would. But I trust God I think that we're supposed to feel the weight of this. We're supposed to really feel the gravity of the judgment that came and why it came. But a lot of people will ask me the question. I want to take just a second to deal with. A lot of people ask the question, how could a holy God and a just God, how could a God who is good do this or command others to do this? So let me just remind you of a couple of things. Number one, just as it's true for a person, an individual, their heart can become hardened. So they reach that point of no turning back where they will never again repent. That can happen. That's not only true for an individual. I think we need to acknowledge that is true for a society as well. It is possible for a culture or for a society to become so fallen, so depraved, so sinful, and so evil that it is beyond being redeemed and it cannot be rehabilitated. We need to acknowledge that that is possible. And if you don't believe that's possible, you need to go back and watch that video from seven years ago of ISIS beheading 21 Christians on the beach in Libya. Yes, it is possible. But I also want to remind you 
that in Genesis, God told Abraham that he would wait 400 years before actually allowing Abraham's descendants to take possession of the land. And you remember the reason why God gave him, why he had to wait so long until the sin of the land was complete. God said, I'm not going to judge Canaan until their sin reaches the point, reaches the level that they actually deserve this judgment. So let me ask you, how patient was God that he was willing to wait more than four centuries before judging them? And how severe must their sin have been if God said that this was the appropriate response? Sure, there are things that we don't like. There are things here that don't make us feel comfortable. And yet God is just. God knows what to do in every situation. I want to point out this is descriptive, not prescriptive. God is telling us, the Bible's telling us what happened, not what we are supposed to do. Nowhere does the Bible authorize us to, to do this. And in fact, uh, the, the same God of Numbers chapter 6 is the God who gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. For God so loved the world. The same God of Numbers chapter 6 is the God who said, turn the other cheek. And love your enemies. When I read this story and this part of the story, it reminds me of something Paul said in Romans chapter 11. We saw this just a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday night study. But Paul said, consider the severity and the goodness of God. We need to spend time thinking about both God's severity and God's goodness. And you know what? We see both of these in Numbers chapter 6. We see the severity of God in judgment in that everyone who was not saved perished. But we also see God's goodness. We see God's mercy because anyone in the city who was willing could be saved. It was five Sundays ago. We were in Joshua chapter 2. We read that story about Rahab. The Bible says Rahab was a prostitute, and yet she believed God. She believed the promise of God. She was saved, and therefore she was, it was promised to her that when God's judgment came, she and those with her in her home would not perish. And I want you to know that in between that time when she protected the Israelite spies and when the judgment came, roughly three weeks, for three weeks there was a witness behind the walls. For three weeks there was a voice beckoning the people, pleading with the people to repent and be saved. There was someone inviting them to come, someone who was saying to them, listen, judgment is coming, but you don't have to perish. You can come in and you can be saved. We don't know the exact number, but it seems to indicate that Rahab, much of her family, and perhaps several others wound up responding to that message. And when the walls of Jericho fell, it wasn't hard for them to tell which home was Rahab's. It was the one still standing. And it was that one marked by that scarlet cord, which we already saw represented the Passover and the shed blood of the lamb from the Passover. But even in a city that was marked for destruction, listen, forgiveness was available. 
Even in a wicked city like Jericho, there was a place of safety. There was a place where anyone could come. And isn't it interesting, isn't it amazing that that place of safety, that place of security, that place of protection, that place of salvation, where was it? In the home of an ancestor of Jesus Christ. You think that's a coincidence? Absolutely not. Just like Jericho, this world is marked for destruction, not because God doesn't love the world, but because the world hates God and has rebelled against him. And just like the walls of Jericho, this world will come crashing down. Because the Bible says one day another trumpet will sound, and one day another voice will shout and Jesus will come again not as a lamb to be slain but as the lion of Judah he will come to rule and to reign and yes to judge and deal with sin and evil in this broken fallen world but until then until then Jesus is inviting anyone who is willing to come and be saved, placing their faith in him. The judgment of God need not fall upon us because 2,000 years ago, God's wrath, God's judgment fell upon Jesus when he died upon the cross for our sins. And he won that battle for us when he rose again on the third day. And so, just like Rahab, in those days leading up to Joshua chapter 6, I beckon you, I invite you, I plead with you, come, don't wait, because there is safety, and there is protection, and there is salvation in Christ, even in the midst of sure destruction. Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you did send Jesus Christ. He was willing to come and suffer your wrath, suffer judgment for sin the sins that we have committed and we thank you that he won that battle over sin and death when he rose again on the third day and that victory now can be ours and so god i pray for those perhaps in this room even now maybe watching online even now who are like those people in jericho in those weeks leading up to the battle of jericho They heard the message. They had the opportunity to respond. Your word tells us they had the knowledge. They knew you were real. Their hearts melted, but they would not repent. Most of them would not repent. But God, maybe there's some people here today, just like those people in Jericho, they have the greatest decision of their lives yet to make. Just as in Jericho, their decision whether to come in and be saved in the home of Rahab, there is that decision that every man, woman, boy, and girl must make to come to Christ because in Christ there is safety and protection and salvation. So if there is anyone who needs to take that step and say, yes, I want to come to Christ, I want to, to be saved, I need to be forgiven, God, I pray that this would be that day that they would not wait any longer, that today really would be their day of salvation. God, I pray for everyone here today that you'd help us to apply everything that we've heard, everything that we've learned, that we 
would be obeying everything that you show us in your word, every command, every instruction, that we would wait upon you. Lord, even when it's difficult, when it's hard, when we don't understand why or what's going on, help us even then to wait upon the Lord, believing that every promise you give us is true, believing that we can trust you to do what you said you will do. And help us all to be like Rahab, to announce that good news of salvation in Jesus Christ everywhere we go. We'll give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed for just a moment, maybe you're here this morning and you are honestly like the majority of the people in Jericho before the walls fell. Just like those people deciding what they were going to do, deciding how they were going to respond to this preacher named Rahab. And just as they had the greatest decision of their lives yet to make, maybe there's somebody here and you still need to make that decision for yourself, that decision to come in to place your faith in Christ, knowing that in Christ there is that shelter, that protection, that salvation from God's sure judgment. The Bible says it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, you've never made that, that decision once and for all and said, I will follow Christ. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. But I will confess him. I'll declare him as my Lord, as king of my life today. From this day forward, my life's not mine. It belongs to him. I will follow Jesus I want to plead with you. I want to encourage you. Don't, don't leave here today without taking that step because you can do it today. Maybe you came here today lost. You can leave here today saved. You can be, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, born again. Anybody here that would say, yes, pastor, that's me. That's the step I need to take. I need to give my heart and my life to Christ for the very first time. Or maybe you would say, well, I'm not sure if I have or not, but I know I need to be sure. Because in Jericho, you were either in Rahab's home or you were not. There wasn't one foot in and one foot out. You were, you were one or the other. And you say, Pastor, I, I'm not sure, but I need to be sure. I, I think I need to take that step today. I'd love to be able to pray with you. I'll be here after the service, and I want to invite you to come and share that with me. But just so I can be praying for you, anybody that by raising a hand that would say, Pastor, that's me, I need to, to take that step. I've never done that. I need to follow Christ as Savior and Lord of my life. Just raising a hand so I can see and, and, and pray for you. I'm not going to put a spotlight on you or embarrass you or anything like that. But anybody that would say, Pastor, that's me. Think about me. Pray for me because I need to take that step today. Those of you that are, are watching online, would you please as well let us know. Uh, communicate with us. Reach out. You can't raise a hand and me see you right now, but you can reach out to us. You can send a, a text message to the number that's there on the screen and let us know. Uh, uh, click that link and let us know the decision that you're making today, whether it be to follow Christ for the first time, whether it be to, if you just need more information, you want to talk about it, uh, we'd love to make an appointment with you. So please, for those of you watching online, um, I know you're there. Take that number, text us, and let us know so that we can follow up with you because we want to, we want to help you to know Christ and we want to help you to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen.